When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today's Thursday, July 27th, 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky. And it's we're going to devote three hours to Barbie and Oppenheimer. Um, I hope everyone's ready because that's all everyone's talking about. So I'm ready to dig in. Rebecca, yeah. what Welcome was to your podcast. favorite shot of... <laughs> Explosions in Oppenheimer. Haven't seen either one yet. Me neither. Uh, darn it. Yeah. Yeah. That we're not, I know. That's not what we're doing today. But Barbie's going to happen this weekend. I think we owe it to the podcast listening public to do something that's not Barbenheimer, just yeah. for the sake of variety. I have an orthogonal topic that I that I dropped in here that we'll get to in a second. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You know, to be to be a book fan is to always already sort of be ninth in the line of cultural currency um but on a day on a week like today when you're really missing something it's like oh yeah i'm, I'm really i'm out of it. i mean i'll watch i will watch both of them mm-hmm. in the beginning i was uh, ames really wanted to see oppenheimer and i want to see it too but apparently there's a fairly graphic extended sex sequence oh boy i'm not quite sure we're ready for at 12 yeah, um I, at this I point like- so Christopher sure. Nolan is uh, that's a heavier, darker place than your sweet twelve-year-old yeah. wants to go. Probably. He loves history, and he's he's done a graphic novel around the making of the atomic bomb, and he's super into the historical piece. But but there's too much butts and pl- butts and plus. <laughs> I think is what I've heard from <laughs> from what's going on in this particular show. And we'll that get sounds to like the right call as well. Though the people, I mean, at the, my local theater here. People were lining up for a three fifteen showing yesterday on a Wednesday, which is oh, wow yeah. for Barbie. It's amazing stuff I, to see. I'm going on Sunday, and I bought tickets yesterday, and I could okay. see um, our local theater does reserved seats, and I could see that a lot of the seats have already been claimed for Sunday mm. afternoon, which I go to the movies pretty frequently, and that's usually seats are not claimed until right. like a couple hours before showtime. Yeah. Um, but I will be there. I have my um, you know monochromatic pink outfit all picked out. I'm ready to smash the patriarchy with Ryan Gosling. You know, and the best way to do that is just seeing a Hollywood blockbuster sponsored by Mattel. I'm glad we figured this out finally, that this is the way to do it. If only a movie critic would write a piece about how Greta Gerwig has to walk the balance beam of cultural criticism and also brand discipline Yeah, for Mattel. Someone anyway. should think of that. I'd love to read one. I mean, everybody have fun out there. I will look forward to seeing it. I'm sure I have a good time. Anyway, we're we're here to talk about books. And I've got a related topic. Let's do our first sponsor break, and I've got some follow-up, and we'll get into the news stories of the week. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven 
great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. I'm not sure, Rebecca, how I got onto this mini, I mean, literally three Googles. It's not a research jag, you know, three Googles deep. But I was reading about, I think some of it coming out of the writer's strike and then some stuff, people always talking about how little authors are paid and how much money there isn't in books and so on and so forth. All, All very legitimate concerns. And like with anything... There's trade-offs and everybody has their reasons and every now and again you get a clear wrong and a clear right. But and I think it I think it was the Barbenheimer numbers that they did mm. this weekend that made me think about it. And like there's two movies competing for the same weekend. And this is, you know, this two huge tentpole movies on the same weekend. They don't Holly doesn't really do this. I think that's what got me thinking about. It. I was like and you, you might have sent me in Slack or coming Slack I was thinking about how many uh-huh. reviews there are every week in Publishers <sighs> Weekly. Just Which Publishers is, Weekly. Well, that's and I say that's a fairly good proxy for the number of books released in any given week. It's not accurate. There's more books than that. Forget oh, self-publishing more, and everything yeah. else like that. But this week, this Publishers Weekly, I counted 136 reviews. And that's a pretty standard week for Publishers Weekly. And they don't get to everything. And again, it does include board books and graphic novels and mysteries and thrillers and inspirational and nonfiction and, you know, all... But that's that's everything. And those are books that eventually you're going to be able to order from a little website called Amazon.com. They may not be stocked at your local bookstore, Barnes & Noble, but if you want them, you can get them, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that is sort of the equivalent of a box office release, a wide, a wide release. So I was just looking the next couple of weeks. Rebecca, how many American movies... <laughs> For the week of August fourth, are do you do you think are opening in wide distribution? Meaning August fourth? Yeah, just next. It's like next weekend. Just yeah, next weekend. I'm thinking. But you know that you could, if you live in a town that has a movie theater, you're going to be able to go see this. You know, Fort Lauderdale or Duluth or Kansas City mm-hmm. or Richmond or Portland. 
this is the movie that you can go see at your little Multiplex. You know yeah, it's going to okay. be there. How many of those movies do you think are going to be so released? So wide release weekend? opening somewhere between four and seven. The answer is one. The <laughs> answer is one movie. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem is the only wide release movie <laughs> coming out. And, and so that really struck me. And then I said, okay, well, what's the relative size of the market? What's U.S. total box, sale, box office in 2022 versus U.S. 2022 trade publishing? Mm-hmm. Trade I like publishing this is just over $9 billion, mm-hmm. and the U.S. box office was just under $8 billion. So, to a first approximation, again, there's a lot of different things. That's not the only money people spend on watching crap, right? You know, sure. you, you there's Netflix and VOD and everything else like that. But on the book side, there's also libraries and used bookstores that don't get... Mm-hmm. So, to a first approximation, let's call those things sort of a wash. I'm sure that's wrong, but you see what I'm... I'm looking for an yeah, order yeah, of yeah, magnitude yeah. discussion here. So, for every wide release movie... Next week, there is a there are a hundred books coming out. at least, at least, at least. It is bananas when it's, you put it that way. When you put it that way, it's. And again, I don't know. I'm not sure what to do about that information because you want authors to make money and you want publishers to be able to pay a living wage and you want all this stuff to happen. But generally speaking, in a given year in the U.S. There's kind of an average expected number of hours Americans are going to devote to reading books, and accordingly, an average number of dollars are going to spend on books. Every now and again, you get a book that moves the market. You know, you get a Harry Potter, you get a mm-hmm. Gone Girl, you get some Colleen Hoover's, and some of that is robbing Peter to pay Paul because you and I will then read the the crawdads when we wouldn't have otherwise if it wasn't a big deal. So I don't know. I don't much how new market breaking, but every now and again there's one that you know we got a new Harry Potter, we got a whatever that comes out that moves the market. But for a first approximation, there's a finite um, reserve of attention, and so the way for the market or for the way to people to get paid more for their work would be to publish fewer books for the fewer books competing for the same to the first order of approximation limited resource mm-hmm. and I don't think people are going to do that and I'm not even sure they want to do that for a couple of reasons one is people who get into publishing want to publish books and people write books for reasons other than in addition to but other than or alongside of making a living wage off it it's a hobby it's aspirational it's a lottery ticket where it might be a thing. You get a teaching gig. You write it as part of your academic research or other kind of public intellectual career. You just want to. You have a story to tell, so on and so forth. And books are very, very safe to lose not too much money on, right? Even a major house can spend, you know, buy a debut literary fiction, spend 10000 on advance, print 10,000 copies, you know, do some production, everything else that goes into it. And even if they didn't sell a copy, you know, are they, they're going to lose a quarter million dollars. I know that sounds like a lot, but for an international conglomerate, it's not that much money. As opposed to a movie where The Flash is going to lose $200 million. It, it just is going to lose $200 million. You, you cannot do that in books. So the floor is very high and the mm-hmm. ceiling is very low, plus mm-hmm. the vocational awe stuff about being a writer and a publisher, I don't think there's a solve here. I guess that's what I'm coming I, down to. Is like when people yeah. say authors only get paid so much, I don't know what the answer is outside of fewer units, 
fewer titles competing for the same dollar, so they each, on average, get more. But I think that's how I, I don't know. Am I am I crazy, Rebecca, no. or am I am I off the beaten path of thinking this through? Is there something I'm missing to think about? No, I ways? don't. I don't think you're missing something. We've sort of, we've talked around the idea of you know, publishers could do fewer better yeah. um, books and that it wouldn't really impact readers ex- most readers experiences because most readers are reading what you know 10 to 15 books a year right. on the heavy side and so there are many 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 more options than the average reader needs in a given year yeah. and then those books stay around in bookstores right. which That's is right. different from the box office like mm-hmm. if you don't go see barbie in the 12 weeks or whatever that's probably extensive but in the time that it's in the theaters you can access it later at home but you can't go back and have you know the theater experience and contribute to the box office for it later i think you know what's happening in films is they take fewer bets and they take really big ones and then they yeah. invest a lot in trying to make those into in, in in making sure that it's a good bet because a bad bet is so much more expensive. And there's the whole market then of like, if a movie is not judged to be worth a big bet, you have indie publish not indie publishing, you have indie cinema, you know, where Mm -hmm. maybe they get some friends together and they like cobble together a couple hundred grand and they make this film and they hope it gets some buzz at festivals and maybe someone will pick it up for distribution and it could go wide and actually make a lot of money and maybe it'll win an award and people will get some recognition. And maybe exactly maybe it will get you your next gig. MGM is not producing tiny movies that they underwrite with Marvel. (laughs) No. Like, they are not doing the thing that publishers are doing where they, uh, like, movie studios are not acquiring films that they expect to lose money on and that they plan to underwrite with the success of their other big Uh, That's at least my understanding. That's at least my understanding. Yeah, this is my understanding of it as well. And publishing is, is actively doing that because there's more investment i think part part of it is the vocational awe stuff part of it is what people who get into publishing assign as the meaning and importance of just putting literature out into the world and like i agree with a lot of that last yes. part i am glad that a lot of books that did not sell very well exist because they i read do many of them are, <laughs> right yes we, we have <laughs> there are many books that have sold two copies and they went to mm. us um, I'm glad that that exists, but publishing has actively created that model. And I think that just acknowledging that those are real choices that have been made, you know, in the same way that like, what's the Annie Dillard, like your, how you spend your days is how you spend your lives. Like we're seeing that in these industries that it just, it, it looks like this is just the way things are. It looks like this is kind of a passive system, but these are choices that these two industries have made to operate differently. And then when you choose to participate in that industry, you then are taking on those choices as well of like, well, maybe I'm only going to get $3,000 for my novel because it's one that the publisher is underwriting with the success of James Patterson. And I've got to cross my fingers. Like, mm-hmm. I where I get frustrated with the sort of ongoing but writers should be able to is like should based on what like because yeah. because they want to a lot like that's I don't that's not how capitalism works mm. like and that's also not how the industry is set up so I think some more hanging a lantern on here is how this industry is set up and if you choose to participate in it this is what you're choosing to participate in you are choosing that this is an industry where most 
people who get a book deal do not sell very many books and will not be able to quit their day jobs. Most people will not be able to be full-time writers. Whereas if you chose to participate in Hollywood, like it might be even harder to break in. I think it is even harder to break into Hollywood than it is to break into publishing. But if you become successful, you become really successful and mm-hmm. have a shot at, you know, long term big money in a way that very few people do. Like it's a it's a much bigger bet. But I, I do think that the fewer, better model would be the way to change publishing or would be a way. It's the lowest hanging, like most obvious way that I can see is produce fewer books, be more judicious about which ones you produce you know, maybe invest more evenly in the marketing across all of them rather than dumping a whole lot of money into a couple and very little money into mm-hmm. most. Um, but I don't think publishing is going to do that. So no. just some, it feels, it makes me feel a little saner to talk about it this way and be like, this is the way that it is. And I don't think publishing is interested in changing. So if you are participating in the industry, like these are the table stakes you're agreeing to, unless or until so many people inside the industry decide that the table stakes need to be changed, that they rally for that. And some of that is happening, you know, with unions happening around um, pushing for, you know, higher starting salaries. But like, you notice that the union is not saying we want to make more money. And also we think you should publish fewer books to do it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because I mean, the other thing you could do is pay out more of your profits to authors and employees, Mm -hmm. which that's, a related but different conversation. Penguin yes. Random House last year um, had a gross revenue of $6.8 billion and a profit of um, $1.1 billion. So $1.1 billion sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. But it's about 17% profit margin. Mm-hmm. It's not a huge margin. And solve for capitalism is always the easiest thing to say in the world. Like, well, they should just give all the money to authors, but then the whole, then, then the, unless you're going to be a nonprofit, which maybe, you know, you can make that argument as well. I don't think there's as much, there's, there's not as much money there as people think. And a billion dollars sounds like a lot and it is, but if you spread that over all the employees and all the authors, everyone getting 15% more, right? Right. Does that, does that, does everyone's like, we've solved it guys, you know? (laughs) That's it. Authors can do their thing. And I just don't think it's that. I don't think that is a solution by itself. Just say, give all the profit back to everyone who makes the books and then take some of the money from the executives. You could could do that and it would help things at the margin. But I think when you see the scale of the number of books produced, so it's just, that's a lot of grass to water with what's in the, with what, what's what, excuse me, with what's in the tank. It's just so That's much, right. so much to take on. Um, it is. From that point of view. And it, it, it just elides or maybe actively ignores that corporations exist to create value for their shareholders. Mm-hmm. And that's not like, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but that's how it works in capitalism. And so right. to say, like the corporations would have to decide it was ultimately long-term in their best interest to give more of the profit, to pay more of the profit out to authors or to bump salaries or, you know, whatever. Less profit to shareholders, more money back into business operations and employees and publishers. They would have to decide it was still going to be long-term profitable Mm -hmm. (laughs) to do that. And I think 
that there are cases where it would be. I think the money that's invested into DEI is one of the great examples of this, that long-term investing in diverse workforces is not just the right thing, it is good for business. But if you're trying to convince a corporation to take money out of their you know, profit bucket and put it back into their salary bucket or author advances bucket or any of those things, the this is the right thing to do argument is not strong enough or sufficient on its own to compel a corporation to make that choice. They have to believe it's also going to result in more money down the line somewhere. And perhaps it would. Perhaps fewer, better books would be more profitable down the line. I would be actually willing to take that bet. Um, But I don't think that publishing is going to undertake that experiment. And it's one of the, I think, interesting pieces. Like Hollywood is a relatively for all of like the liberal politics that float around it, I think a a relatively conservative industry in many Mm. ways. And publishing is so populated by folks who are, you know, on our end of the political spectrum, pretty liberal that the, those liberal politics and the pushing against um, the, the forces of capitalism sort of baked into the ways that many of us see Mm -hmm. and talk about the world, but it, ignores that the reality of like how these corporations were put together and how they will continue to function unless or until there's a monetary incentive to them to function differently like just because it's the right i wish we lived in a world where corporations would be like that is just the right thing to do we're going to do it but that's not how it is and so to hang a lantern on that i think is really helpful i don't know that it you know actually succeeds in decreasing any of the like agita around all of this no like, and I'm not interested in decreasing the agita yeah. for other people I'm interested in decreasing my own not my, my own, own agita, but <laughs> yeah. sort of thinking through the, the yeah. question of like what you know if I were the czar of books and could wave my wand what would I do mm-hmm. um, assuming for the moment I couldn't make into a ideal socialist plus utopia I'm just going to take that off the table like what right. actually would I do if I were the CEO of PRH because the CEO of PRH is doing things they're cutting staff and you know doing some stuff like that. But do you, as a reader, do you want to live in a world with fewer books? And let's also say this: the books that get cut are not the ones at the end of the aisle at Target. Those are not the books that are going to get cut. Yeah, they're going to be striptease by Kate Flannery, which I was just listening to. Does that get published in a world in which you're trying to be plus on every single title? with a 51% average expected confidence? I kind of think not. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's a bad example, but it's kind of, no one's, I'm, not, I'm probably not going to recommend that book necessarily to many people. You know, I, maybe it gets turned into something. I don't really think so. But like, that's the kind of book I like to read that other people aren't talking about. It was on some list. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of book that at the best would be marginally included in this profitable per title world. Even taking into account, well, let's be a little less greedy um, on the corporate side because I think that's what I think more books than people would realize would disappear yeah if that's what the if that's the world we operated and would authors even sign up for that say hey here's the deal we're all gonna if we can get enough signatures from authors both now authors that exist now and exist in the future that haven't read anything yet but think they might want to to say all right I am going to sign this document that does two things. One is it guarantees that every author is going to make 33% more money than they would if I didn't sign this document. But there will be 60% fewer books. So there's a chance I will not get a book deal. But if I do, I'm going to make 33% more than I do now. Do you think authors sign that piece of paper? They would. 
Yes, because everybody bets on or is tempted to bet on, I, I get the success. Like, I think the behavioral economics would say, the studies would say that people would do that. Um, that they want the upside to exist for them in the case that they do win that lottery. Yeah. Um, like, if I've read my Kahneman correctly, <laughs> I think that that's what people would do. I think in a, maybe a slightly less like less severe example i think even if you were the ceo of prh or like when i am the empress someday that's the that's the title i would most like to have that's a good one yeah um while you're being the supreme commander of things no czar i'm too Um, czar today i like the czar okay yeah Yeah. sure yeah yeah, that's nice well i'm when i'm the empress of publishing i think if i roll out and say we're going to publish 10 percent fewer books every year and that's one of the ways that we're going to save money and reinvest in the company and pay people more there's i think there's still an outcry of no but books but we need the books and then and then the authors need the opportunities and like this feels very similar to me to the conversation that we had last week about there's all the criticism about publishing is broken but if you try to do anything differently that's also the wrong thing so what is what is the right thing Well, the right thing is a secret instruction orders that nobody knows that they should be doing. Do that, you know. Great. Do that. Do that. Maybe I should spend more time on Twitter and then I can figure it out. Yeah, I mean, and and we are um, insider-ish. Like, we don't work in publishing and I'm sure there are efficiencies and other things to do. Um, Sometimes it's helpful to consider, uh, you know, I remember... In Crime and Punishment, one of the great discussion questions that I was teaching Crime and Punishment, Russ Kolnikov, I don't know if it's a realization or epiphany or it's an idea. It's, I guess it's the it's the version of the generous reading towards the world or a more generous reading towards the world. It says, yeah, what if we're not all rascals, basically? Like, what, <laughs> mm-hmm. what if it's not all garbage? What if it's not all completely broken? Not to say it couldn't be better, but that essentially it's more functional than not or way more functional than you think. That can be a helpful counterweight to people should just do things differently so that the world is more like I would like it to be. But I don't know yeah. what those things are, nor do it's, I have experience doing them. Right. Um, and like to truly live into our archetypes here, you're doing Dostoevsky and the Brene Brown version of yes. that that I'm going to do is try to believe that most people are doing their best most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> and coming from a place of wanting to do well, like. You know, most of the folks that we've met over more than a decade of working in publishing are trying to do a good job and do care about what they're doing and do care about the people that produce the books and that market the books and that publicize Mm -hmm. them. And like all along the watchtower, most people are trying to do this well. These are really big systems, but to the place that I'm, that I really struggle with the, all of this is broken is the assumption that then everyone who is any part of it is a bad actor and could, you could just do it all differently tomorrow, but you don't want to because you're bad, Mm -hmm. um, is a very unnuanced and I I just think incorrect approach to trying to solve any problem, but it, it is the one that I see repeatedly about criticism inside publishing. And maybe this happens in other industries, you know, like I try to come, I try to come around to this. Like, did, did people have similar versions of this around like the music industry when Spotify was ascendant? Was it just that all of the music studios were broken and everybody running them was stupid and bad and evil capitalists. And I should be in charge to do things that I don't understand in an industry that I don't have business experience in um it's the thing you like to say about it's easier it's really easy to run other people's businesses for them um but it it feels like 
there are a lot of books. <laughs> There's, there I mean, are going to continue to be right. a lot of books. Publishing does not seem to be interested in making changes. And so like this is the state of the world, and it, it does help me to feel sane to, to accept. This is the state of the world that we live in. Not that we can't work for any kind of changes in right. it, but to recognize like you can be more effective if you recognize what kind of changes are actually possible. And yeah, what we, yeah, that's helpful. That's a helpful reframing because I think I'm not, I don't want to excuse everything that is, I'm sure, many things wrong in this industry and others. But I was, th- I, I kind of, I guess what I'm sort of experimenting with the hypothesis that the central problem is not that publishers are nefarious and incompetent, which is the, always right. the, the, you know, that's the, the what you say when you don't like something. But there are a lot of books chasing not, mm-hmm. a lot of books are chasing the available dollars. There's just a lot of books chasing the available dollars. Right. And that is the, that is the spinning molten core of authors not I mean, getting that much money yeah, on average. if you... If you think about it as like a really old fashioned lottery drawing with, you know, the balls rattling around in a big round cage, mm-hmm. then the box office on a given weekend is maybe one ball, maybe five or yeah. six in the middle of Oscar season. Right. right. <laughs> and if I'm committed to picking one of those, then let's go with Oscar season. Each one in there has like a 20 to 25 percent chance of being the one that I've chosen. That's pretty good odds at winning the lottery. <laughs> If you yeah. if you have a book coming out on I don't know September fifth <laughs> or mm-hmm. October third this year, which have big competition in like big name publishing, but also they're just big release dates. There's probably several hundred books coming out on those days. You have less than one percent chance of having the ball with your title on it come yeah. out of that little lottery cage, and that's the world we're living in. Like, I think there's a lot of middle path between those two. There would be ways to decrease the number of books published and not have it like super impact readers' experiences because if you're coming down by like 10 or 20%, you're not expecting all of them to be successful no. on the scale that you know a Marvel movie is successful. You can still take some that aren't going to sell very well but that are artistically valuable and will be underwritten. But there's no way, like publishers can't announce that they're making that change. Like you'd have to kind of do that on the sly. You'd have to be like, we're just going to make fewer deals this year. Because if you announce that's part of your strategy, then you're wrong for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good way of putting it too, is like, there are so many that the other thing that happens, it's it's almost like a a reverse, um, I don't know what you call it, a recursive cycle, a negative Mm -hmm. pattern where the Barbie Oppenheimer thing, because they were kind of twinned, right? They're orbiting around each other. Then that generated energy because you know it's sucking up all the attention. They were sucking it up together, and that gravity pulled in more attention and more memes and more right. coverage and more and more and more. But there, I think there's a some is less than the parts when it comes to there being that many books. Like no single thing to in most weeks in most years can accrue enough attention that it starts building on itself again, right? Yeah. Everyone, you and, need a certain escape velocity, but everyone's competing with the same thrust. And unless one <laughs> right. of them can really get out there, it's like everyone's going to be in, you know, crash and burn on the earth. But if there were fewer books to thrust, I think, weirdly, there may be more books sold. Mm-hmm. But do I want to live in that world where there's fewer of the books that I want to read? I, I guess not. I was also thinking about, and we'll do a sponsor break and really get a news, I promise, like, 
the NBA, National Basketball Association, mm-hmm. not the National Book Award. This is like the one situation. <laughs> it's important where I have to distinctions that. to make here on this yeah. podcast. I was looking at there because they signed a new collective bargaining agreement, you know, this summer, I think, or maybe it was in the spring. And I don't know the details. As you know, I'm not a, a law expert or mm-hmm. a labor negotiator, but I have in my head that sort of 50% of the revenue of the NBA goes to the players in the forms of salary caps and floors, 50% of the revenue. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was thinking in terms of Hollywood and, you know, you see the the propaganda infographics that I have no way of judging whether they're right or wrong about here's 1% of the whole industry and that would pay for all the writers and actors' demands. I don't know if that's right, but I see those things. I'm sure there are people out there that do too. Mm-hmm. Is there a world in which an NBA-like model exists? Because other things that NBA teams do is they limit the number of roster spots and they have right. salary caps. Because if you're going to do that, you do something else to keep costs in check because you have to pay out 50% of revenue. Is there a world in which you know, some upstart publishing company says, we can be competitive by giving half of the money to authors? And would they get, I don't know, would they get authors that come to them and so they sell more, they have to do less marketing, they publish fewer books? I don't know. Is there a business case for something like that? Because there are crater economies, right? Like the reason the NBA does this is because this, basketball is the is the stage, but the players are the actors. The NBA is the movie screens. Well, yeah. But and I wonder if something like, I wonder if, but like, I'm looking at a 15% mar- profit margin. You'd have to give that, and I don't know how, what, I don't see this broken out this way, but what percentage of that other five and a half billion dollars gets paid out to authors? Mm-hmm. Like, how much more would it have to be? And where would it come from? It's a great question. I don't question. know the answer to that. Because there, there are, as I was saying, there is a maker-creator economy out there that pays 50% of its revenue to the players. And is it because there's so much money that the margin is really good? And there's only right. 30 NBA teams. I guess that's the other thing. is saying they've limited <laughs> right. the number of teams there are. <laughs> right. There are limits around it. Mm-hmm. And... I think also the expectation that like an NBA fan has of the enjoyment that they're going to get from attending a game or watching a game, the expectation you have about the two or three hours you go to spend watching a movie versus the expectation you have for the average book you read. Like we talk about at the end of the year, our favorites, you know, you get to highlight maybe 10, 15% of the things you read as being like really great stuff you would want to recommend, things you're going to be thinking about and talking about. And just last week, I was talking to you about having seen Past Lives and you were telling me that Mm. going to see Showing Up was the, like the movie Showing Up was the best novel you read this year. Best literary novel of the year for me, yeah. That was on the pod? That was offline? No, I think we were just on the phone. Um, Because I came out of Past Lives and then like went right back into the Linklater trilogy and as I was doing all of that watching, I was thinking, okay, these four movies together are better than most of the literary fiction I read in a year. And we read top shelf stuff around here. But there's something going on there too with like scrutiny to quality. Because you get to take fewer bets, you have to take really, really, you have to take them on really good stuff. Mm. Um, And the ceiling on the really good stuff just is higher. You know, like, I, I I love books. I think we on this podcast have to be, like, among the people mm-hmm. who are, who, who like and appreciate books, you know. In, we're on the far, like, right end of the bell curve there yeah. for how much are we glad to be reading a book. But there's only so many times I can come out of a theater having spent two hours watching a movie and think, 
okay, that two hours was better spent than the last two hours I spent with a novel before I really start wondering about what we're doing around well, here. Well, I mean, I think it's an interesting point and possibly a controversial, well, not controversial it's a, one. But well, I mean, it's a hot take. I, I don't <laughs> know that it's a hot take necessarily. I think the thing is you and I are further down the funnel of watching art movies. So if we're going to go, mm. once showing up or past lives on the radar, we've already been gatekept, Rebecca. It's like That's if true. we handed someone else <laughs> Lauren Groff, and they're like, this is what literary <laughs> fiction is? What have I missed? Like, well, we didn't also didn't pass you the other nine things that, you know, premiered at the Toronto <laughs> Film Festival that didn't get distribution in Richmond, Virginia. That's true. That's true. So I think I think we can be subject. Like, the, I think a good question is, you know, by the end of the year, maybe this is a Patreon episode or something we do here. Name your five favorite movies, your five favorite books, and say you could only kept the experience of one of those groups. Which one do you keep? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but any even an indie movie like showing up, and again, it's Michelle Williams and, and it's Kelly Reichardt. So these are these are pros, even if they're working indie. More human hours go into that little production than go into any trade oh. hardback. I mean, just yeah. the amount of work it takes to make something like that is completely different. And books can be weirder. When, I think that's another thing. It can be stranger true. and more specific um, because you can have one person toiling away on Microsoft Word from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. for two years and make something really strange and someone takes a chance yeah, at an MCD or Grey Wolf or Europa or Soft School or $2 Radio and you're never going to get things that weird from someone who has no experience making something. And there's something special about that. There's something there really is. special about that. I do think that there's real benefit to what happens in creative collaboration though mm-hmm. and maybe that's just an unspoken part of what I'm feeling about the like, I don't know, not quality divide, but the like average return on the movie versus book experience that I'm talking about here is that something really special also happens when you have somebody like Kelly Reichert and somebody like Michelle Williams and then somebody else who's working in costuming and they're all bringing creative energy and ideas to try to like chisel this piece of stone down to being the most beautiful thing possible and publishing a book is a creative collaboration you know you have an editor but often that collaboration is between the writer and the agent and the editor and that's like three sets of ideas and brains and energy working on something rather than the like dozens or hundreds that you would get on a film. And I do think there can be real benefit to that, to a, like the right group of a bunch of people trying to hone something. Um, yeah. We're completely off of like, how should we change the business model of well, publishing or should it change at all? But I think it's, it's related. And so it's related in so far as they're different. There's related, but different products. And we're, we're trying to parse like mm-hmm. how analogous are they really? Right. Because what's interesting yeah. about that collaboration thing, it's like, Usually someone is not the writer, director, and um, actor. I mean, sometimes you get stuff like this. And, but the, there's so, there's, the decision surface of even a very small-scale movie is so intense. Mm-hmm. And people have different roles to play. It requires collaboration. Where a writer can write a novel and get some notes and, you know, there's not as much, you know, I'm doing the costumes and you're doing the lighting. Like the, the just the human decision density, and the whole and the experience itself is just richer from a yeah. decision making platform. That more decision making time and energy actually results in a better product. I think that can be true for editing, but you also can really water down a vision and bring it That's to the true. middle. And I don't know. I mean, 
because the it's, minimum viable product for a book is so minimum, you can get wild, weird, <laughs> groundbreaking experiences mm-hmm. that can blow your mind in a way that movies have a harder time doing, right? Books tend to be ahead of most other art forms in terms of theme, content, style, because they're like bugs that just have more generations to, to mutate right. and to turn into other stuff. Yeah, I think um, that's an important piece of it, too. And and thinking about, like, would authors take a deal, like the NBA mm-hmm. deal? It made me think about how movie studios used to operate, where a star would be attached to a yeah. particular studio. Yeah. And, like, you had a contract with that studio for a certain number of pictures over a certain number of years. You could not go do films with other studios, and that contract was negotiated right. around those things. Like, I don't know enough about the history of Hollywood to know if like all of the stars for a studio engaged in any kind of collective bargaining at any point, (laughs) but you could imagine somebody might try that now or, and that might be more effective. Like uh, as we saw with the union at, you know, Harper Collins to bring it back to publishing, like all the folks in one company lobbying, like coming together and lobbying for a change that benefits them rather than trying to get people from, you know, that are impacted by all the studios and then get all the studios to respond. Or like when we bring, it into publishing trying to get all the publishers to agree like it feels crazy making to me Mm -hmm. to think about like an effort to try to get for someone to somehow aggregate publishing employees across the big five and then all of the smaller ones and then somehow use those people to negotiate with the big five and the other publishers and get all the publishers to agree to a set of terms about how they're going to behave. Like there's well, so that's many of what them. The, that's so what the many AMTP, more people. MTP is trying to, I mean, I, I always forget there's like 900 yeah. TMPs yeah. in with a body just, that's, it's, it's, it seems hard. It does seem very it's hard. It's so much more, it's just so much more unruly than the NBA is where you yes. have 30 teams that have what, like how many people are on a basketball team? I a mean, I dozen. think you get a, a 12. <laughs> no, I think there's 12 <laughs> roster spots. There's literally okay. 600 people in the NBA that have a roster spot. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. So it's just a much smaller situation to try to work out. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, some other things they've done is like even, um, who's the most, probably Jokovic for the Nuggets. He was the MVP, mm-hmm. won the NBA championship. There's a cap on what the NBA has allowed to pay him. He's more valuable than his salary to a team. But yeah. they've done that because they want that money to go to other places and it helps the keep to the 50%. I mean, it's to use a model like that, say, James Patterson, you can only actually make this much money. No matter how many books you sell next year or write, mm-hmm. or, you're only going to get so many dollars and the, the excess will get towards the end of the bench or go towards the guy or, or woman right. or person and, selling popcorn or something else like that. Yeah. And like this is a thing that people who are trying to break into the NBA now know to be yes. part of their table stakes. If you yes. are lucky enough to become an NBA player, there will be a cap on how much you can earn and they've like that's become part of the culture folks accept Mm -hmm. that about moving in i think it would take a lot to shift publishing because publishing is such a lottery in so many ways both on the supply side and the demand side that to try to tell aspiring authors there will be a cap on the size of book deal you can get like even if you sell as many books as you're you're going to be the next colleen hoover your book deal after that can still only be so high, no matter mm-hmm. how successful you become, no matter how much money you make for the publisher. Um, I think that would be a tough sell yeah. for folks. Yeah, and not for nothing, if fewer books were published, there'd be fewer staff on these publishers. There'd be mm-hmm. fewer of these jobs, which I guess 
you know, is it better for there to be fewer jobs that don't pay a living wage? <laughs> Most people in a vacuum would say yes, unless, of course, you're trying to work in publishing. And they're like, well, I'm going to take my <laughs> shot and I'll figure it out right. and, you know, let, let the market do its thing. So it's tricky. And, you know, I don't want to, I certainly don't hear me dismissing all critiques of the publishing industry. Good Lord, that is not what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, no. But I think a framing around like, what the business problem, quote unquote, is of books is fascinating to think about. It really is. Because I don't is. think and people understand how many books there are competing for a finite set of time and attention. And, and that dollars. we have spent 40 minutes just trying to even come close, anywhere yes. close to the neighborhood of defining that problem yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is really indicative, I think, of yeah. how tangly it is. And this, I don't know, it's time for me to trot out the the internet flattens all arguments mm. <laughs> moment of the show that like that's that's just a, a really important piece that doesn't come across in like a two slide meme on Instagram or however many characters you're allowed to put on Twitter these yeah. days is that these are not simple problems and they don't have simple solutions. They're very right. complex and there right. are a lot of moving parts and a gain on one side in most cases is a loss or a give mm-hmm. on some other component of it. And Nobody wants that to be true, I understand, and it doesn't like suit the you know infographic that you're trying to make go viral among activist publishing employees, but that's yeah. how it, this is tricky, and calling it tricky is like also a vast underselling of uh, understatement of how really how hard this is to think about um in any kind of comprehensive way, much less try to solve any component of it. Yeah, and neither does it authorize a CEO getting paid a thousand times their lowest paid no, full-time employee. No, no. But I think even if that person comes down to, I don't know, five times the lowest paid full-time employee, I just think the marginal value to any average author of PRH is going to be pennies right, mm-hmm. in royalty checks because there's yep. only one CEO, even if it's... $25 million or $100 million. The HBO stuff, Zaslav's stuff about getting a quarter billion dollars, I don't understand. I, I don't understand how that works. No. So that's that's a different conversation to have. You're, $100 million there, $100 million there, certainly you're talking about real money. Um, let's do a second break and then figure out what the hell we're going to do with the last 10 or 15 minutes of the show. <laughs> I don't know. Is there any one of these you want to highlight? There's nothing no, I, super timely, but some yeah, this is stuff. actually a week where I feel like we could just put these links all in the show notes and direct yeah. folks to read the ones that they think are going to be interesting because there's not a whole lot to say about any of these other right. than we think this is worth your time to consider, yeah. which is why we just spent the last 45 minutes doing what we did instead. Um, but so among the things you can find in our show notes this week will be um, Publishers Weekly is doing really interesting features on the this organization called um, Disability and Publishing that formed in 2021. Folks who have a variety of disabilities and, neurodi- and neurodivergence um, are looking at all sorts of stuff about how people with disability are represented in publishing from, you know, how they have different kinds of jobs right into like the content of the books that are published. Mm. PW's done several pieces. So the link that I have in our show notes will take you to like one long piece that PW has about disability and publishing. And at the bottom of that are links to a bunch of their other things looking at disability rep and publishing. So that's worth taking a look at. Um, Javier Zamora, who wrote Salido, was that last oh, yeah. year or 2021? I don't remember. I just was okay. recommending this to somebody. It's rare that I read a link where I'm like, oh, 
duh. This is absolutely and totally yeah. right. No notes. This was the one. Yes. So maybe I'll take this, this was one. This was the one. The last one. Yeah, go for it. Um, Zamora basically, I mean, I, I wrote I wrote it for Today in Books, I think, over the weekend. And usually I kind of do a summary with a little context. This was so patently obvious to me that I just quoted Zamora's piece. It's like, mm-hmm. the, the headline is, it's time for the Pulitzer Prize to accept literature nominations from non-citizens. And I guess that's it. That's the tweet. It's like, you shouldn't have to be have a certain document or a green card or whatever. And Zamora has some things. I'm less conversant in the varieties of paperwork you can and cannot have if you live in the United States, to be perfectly honest. So that's one of the reasons I wasn't as up to this. But he's arguing, like, if you are living here and it's an award for the United States, you should be eligible. Mm-hmm. I th- I feel like this is the kind of thing that these prizes are going to be like, oh, right, yeah, yeah. That's we want to be on the right side of. I think this so too. Pretty quickly. Um, anyway, so he was ineligible for a poetry contest earlier, and then he was ineligible for the Pulitzer Prizes for Solito. Gosh, what a good book. Which is an amazing book. And I think I said in the, today in Books Write-Up, it was my favorite nonfiction of the year. Uh, of the year it came out, especially on audio. I recommended it to someone recently on audio. And yeah, yeah, here we go. In 20, 2022, I published my memoir and second book, Solito. Months before, my editor and agent explained that because I wasn't a citizen, there, was, there were prizes I wasn't eligible for. Mm, yeah. I had the same thought reading that of like, this is obvious. I'm glad that the argument is being made and that he was the one to make this argument. He makes it so perfectly mm-hmm. that I hope we get to see some shifts and in response to that soon. Um, other interesting things for folks, um, Libro FM, an audio, great audiobook company, independent audiobook company, um, had their international launch this week. So if you are a listener outside the U.S. and you're looking for an audiobook solution, I don't know exactly which countries. I believe Australia and New Zealand were among them. Mm. Uh, so you can check check that out you might have access to libro now and it's the functionality on libro is great wonderful audiobook app definitely worth a poke um bink which is the book industry something something mm, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah that's it i don't have the link open because yeah. now i'm just talking no, you're about thinking, you're thinking of highlights. bis bis is book industry something 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 yeah yeah uh-huh yeah. Um, but they have uh, launched an incubator for booksellers who are BIPOC and LGBTQ. And it's exactly what you would think an incubator is. If you're a bookseller who falls into one of those categories or, or both of them, uh, you can uh, access up to three years of funding and guidance and mentorship and all kinds of resources. So that's or if you're thinking about opening a bookstore, um, that's something to check out. And then Jeff this week, George R. R. Martin is back on his blog. <laughs> You know what it gives him time to do, though, Rebecca? That the, all these pr- movie and TV productions, um, mm-hmm. he can be writing his. Uh, so the the TLDR is his HBO deal has been suspended, uh, presumably because of the strikes, but he yeah. doesn't specify. And HBO did not respond to oh, a request for I didn't comment. Even pick up that that yeah interesting omission of course it could uh-huh. be could immediately say yes it is because of that but yeah. it's, it's fascinating that's the possibility right. that it's for yeah it's a piece on entertainment weekly um and he does say he's still working on winds of winter just yeah. in case you wondered <laughs> so those are the pieces of news this week that will be in the show notes and you can check those out um if you want any more about any of that i had an idea um, for a future segment um that's called over unders and we can't really do it but 
you know, I was going to throw at you some, pick the over or under for various things. And one is the Winds of Winter publication date. <laughs> and and I'm not kidding, Rebecca. And I is said, the heat death I of the universe an option? at Book Riot. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> will, will George R.R. R. Martin do this, publish this book before we retire? <laughs> the other one I was looking at real hard and I was trying to figure out a, a number for was the number of weeks until Colleen Hoover does not have one of the 10 best-selling books in the United States. Oh, I would need some time to do the math, but I'm interested Yeah, you in really that would need that meme of like someone staring at the whiteboard with a bunch yeah, of algebra. Yeah, you have on to it. beautiful mind that one for a little yeah, while. There, there was that was one I was really looking at. There's a there's like a couple other one. interesting ones. The number um, of years until we get another Donna Tartt book. Um, <laughs> well, maybe this not, is good. Go ahead. I see. She's not quite in George R. R. Martin territory for space between books there, but she's not far from it. I mean, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, the the Patrick Rothfuss thing. The one I mm-hmm. was thinking about, and this is translucent in frontless for you because I'm in the middle of Crook Manifesto. The mm-hmm. over under for the number of um, Colson Whitehead books starring Ray Carney after Crook Manifesto, and I put the over under at point five. That's we can say. Yeah. What do you think? Is there another Ray Carney book or not? I think he said there were going to be three. Damn it! Um, That's not what I wanted to hear—an actual <laughs> answer. That's you screwed the whole thing up by knowing things. But I was actually—I was wondering the same thing when I was okay. reading it last week because I heard him. He was on Ezra Klein when um, Harlem Shuffle came out, and he was talking about how usually he just his books are one-offs. You know, like he does mm-hmm. one trick and then he wants to go and learn a different trick. But he had so much fun with Ray Carney that I, I, and I think he said three. Um, okay. I finished so Crook Manifesto. Yeah, I'm taking the over. I liked it. I think I would be fine if like if two were it. So I would be I would accept the point five or the yeah. under. But um, I think you would hope for the under, but maybe bet on the over. Yeah, I could hear. That. Yeah, mostly because I'm ready. I want to see Colson Whitehead do as many different things as possible. Yeah, it's all opportunity cost, right? <laughs> if someone else is writing right. these, I'd be like, yeah, give me a billion yeah, of these. It, totally. I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm like so glad he's having fun, uh, but I would like to see him do something else. Okay, so that takes us to front list for you. I think I felt him. I don't know, maybe it's because it's the second go-around. Enjoying it even mm-hmm. more than in yeah. Harlem oh, Shuffle. Yeah. Um, it feels really lived in. Yeah, and I don't know from a reading experience. I, I think Harlem Shuffle is the better book, honestly. I, I just I, I just do. Maybe it's because it's the introduction to the world. I think it's a little bit leaner. Whitehead is spending a little more time poking his head around corners um, mm-hmm. in Crook Manifesto, which is his right. As a reader, I found it, there's to be diminishing returns, though. Yeah. Also, reading a Colson Whitehead <laughs> book where he's enjoying it is like the top one percent of reading experience. So it's like hard to be too down. I'm not down right. on it. I'm just sort of totally grading on a curve. Yeah. Here. The like the whole second. I think it's the second section of the book where we move away from Carney and you're with his like kind of his henchman Pepper. Yeah. yeah. For a while, took me a little while to get into, but then and I, I had the same like oh, but Colson Whitehead just wants to hang with Pepper for a hundred pages. So okay, let's do it. Like yeah, I'm down. Um, really There's no fun. other author I'd I would pleasurely read describing 1970s <laughs> furniture styles. I know, truly, <laughs> truly. Um, anything else on your front list foyer this week? Um, I guess a little bit of preview of it's. I'm reading ahead of publication dates, so it's not even front list a little bit. But I said um, that James McBride is joining me right. next week for first edition, so I'm into having the grocery store. Heaven Earth Grocery Store, a lot of good buzz. Had a really nice um, listener email for first edition saying that booksellers, at least at, at their bookstore, is all over it. And I'm really looking forward to it Love there. Love to hear that. 
Um, I was listening to Striptease by Kate Flannery. I'm almost done with that. It's about her time at American Apparel, which fits mm-hmm. the Rebecca. I'll read about a cult because it, it was that. It's a de <laughs> facto fast fashion sex cult. So both most interesting and the most boring kind of cult at one and the same time. Yep. Yep. Um, I think there's some. There might be a shelf life on exposés of these kinds. Of, like this is like 20 years old at this point. Yeah. The American Apparel moment, and I kind of felt it. Right, it's not bad blood. Um, mm-hmm. I think for these things to really hit hard, to I, she does a good job, and she gets details that you're never going to get. I think in other ways, but I kept, can't help me thinking: Would I rather read a reporter story of this book or an insider story? Because she was a part of it, and a part of some of the not the worst parts, but like still pretty bad parts. And you can't help but feel like there's some image maintenance stuff happening. Mm. And it wasn't obvious, but you can't help but wonder, right? You, you, yeah. It would be completely natural Fair. to tell this story from your point of view and maybe shave the edges down um, where if it's, you know, John Carreyu or <laughs> oh, Paige God. Williams or Patrick Radden Keefe or um, Margaret uh, Wilkerson, they're not shaving edges down. Mm-mm. And I, I just wonder about yeah, that. So I, I enjoyed it, but. Okay. I'd had my eye on it. Like it was on my short list for the season and I Mm -hmm. had not yet like convinced myself to pick it up because I think all those same hesitations about like, will this be actually fresh and interesting? And like, at what point have you read enough corporate exposés that you've read them all? Yeah. (laughs) Um, It was a a thing I'm wondering. I'm um, almost done with the new Ann Patchett. Tom oh, Lake. the Tom Lake. You wait. Were you reading that when we did the the no the book? Okay, I was right. getting ready to. Um, All right. I mean, it's great. It's an Ann Patchett book. It delivers. It's and I think it's actually funnier than she usually is. Oh, like the first. I like that. Yeah. So the I mean the setup is it's like it's March of 2020 but it's not a COVID novel it's just like the frame is that this woman who's in her 50s her three adult daughters are all home they are working on their family's cherry orchard in Michigan and while they're working she is telling her daughters the story of the summer that she spent working doing like summer stock acting Mm -hmm. at a theater called Tom Lake Um, and they're interested in this story because she fell in love that summer with a guy who went on to become a famous movie star And so they want to hear their mother's story about the summer she was in love with the movie star. But it opens with the mom talking about being in high school, um, auditioning for Our Town and listening to other people auditioning for Our Town because that that play is at the center of the book in a bunch of ways. And it is like how Ann Patchett imagines herself into the mind of a 17 year old who's critiquing the like 45 year olds who come in to audition for community theater. It's really funny. It's really funny. Um, The rest of it is warm and great. And I was thinking about, I was looking at the physical object of the book, and I was thinking about how on the It book episode for uh, first edition. Don't give it away. Don't give it away. No, no, no. No, but I was saying that it doesn't, you don't even need to tell me what the new Ann Patchett novel is about. It doesn't matter because (laughs) Ann Patchett is great. When you look at the cover of this book, it's just like, a, yeah. an impressionistic painting of a field of flowers it tells you absolutely nothing and i have decided i think this is the biggest flex like we mm. have the flex of the author's name is bigger than the title on a book Gold that is embossed on a black yes. color field with maybe like but, some kind of like car headlights <laughs> or something in the front <laughs> right but i have now decided that's the second level flex the mm. biggest flex is the title and the author's name are in like perfectly modest font 
font and the cover has no information whatsoever That's because what the Colleen publisher is, is like it's like it it's Colleen matter. Hoover on wallpaper on screensavers <laughs> right they don't right. have to do it yeah, it's just here's a field of flowers. Don't you want to read an Ann Patchett book? And the answer is yes. Yeah, that's that's that's. I'm going to read that too. So that's a good shout. We'll get out of here on this. Rebecca and I. It's available now. It came out yesterday on first edition. We did the It Books of August. Rebecca was really torn. I was. It was tough. really torn. I think we're happy with what we chose. We may be wrong, mm-hmm. um, but we came down to having a, a tough. T- a dark night of a dark. Well, let's call it a dusky night of the soul. It's not that bad, but a a dusky night of the soul of tr- picking a head versus heart, and not even that. It's just anyway. The the you'll, the conversation will make sense once I start bab- babbling about it. And you go listen. You can find the show notes, a link to that episode, bookride.com, Listen all the show, all the notes we talked, or excuse me, the links we talked about today, which were like two, um, <laughs> and you can Google the stats for yourself. That's available to you. I had a funny chat GPT experience yesterday. I was going to tell you oh, about tell me. here for two seconds. I was trying to find this. I'm like, I'm going to give this the, the old chat GPT try to, because Google sure. is hard for stuff like this and you don't know. The answer was unusable. And I was using it for something else. I want to know how many weekdays were going to be January to June of 2024. Right? Hmm. It seems like a perfect thing of, it's going to be hard to Google and it's annoying to count, but it feels like something the robots might know. And, and it couldn't the do answer, it? would you like to guess what answer it gave me? <laughs> How many weekdays between January and June? Oh, no, I just want you to tell me. 30. <laughs> <laughs> and explained its logic is because oh. there, are, there are five days in a week uh-huh. and there are six months. So five. Yeah, that's how that works. And each week has five days, and there apparently is one week in a month, according to ChatGPT. Uh, well, and so it said there are 30. But that's what's weird. I said, okay, how many weekdays are in June or January 2024? And it gave me 21. So I was like, weird. wait a minute here. It was weird. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure what to do with that kind of I know. Like, it makes was me that- not want to go use it. I know. I was going to say, well, this like kind of lends credence to those headlines I've been seeing about how ChatGPT is becoming less accurate. Because I was wondering, yeah. like, is it was it a prompt problem or a ChatGPT problem? But it seems like that's the kind of question that you shouldn't have to engineer a, a like perfect prompt for the for it to be able to figure out what you're asking. Right. Right. Um, well, and like, interesting. I could just sit there and count the weekdays. Right? <laughs> I could do that in a few minutes versus prompt engineering. Like, okay, can you add the number of the next step was going to can you add the number of days, weekdays in January to February? And I was like, no, mm-hmm. what am I doing here? This That's is annoying, dumb. Right? That's annoying. At that point, so, you might as well count. Yeah. So anyway, there's there's um, <laughs> scenes from basic questions in chat GPT that uh, didn't get right. I feel like the bloom have come off the rose there a little bit. Oh, yeah. We've talked about it. I think it. so, it too. I wonder. Crazy uptake or, you know, really yeah. asymptotic moves there and. I wonder what the user activity rates look like. I've been watching the headlines about how Threads is already on the decline. And I wondered about ChatGPT as well. The last big headlines we saw about something having massive user Mm -hmm. uptake to start. Yeah, interesting. All right, Rebecca, you can almost email us at podcast at bookwrite.com as well. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Have a good one. (laughs) 